Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. Today we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Now before you tune out and say, how many messages have I heard about the Ten Commandments? We're going to look at a different perspective of the Ten Commandments. So if I were to start out and say, by a show of hands... Who has the Ten Commandments prominently displayed in their home or their office? Like a picture on the wall or something like that. Few good Old Testament scholars, okay? <laughs> um, so what I've got here is a, this is a little paperweight of the Ten Commandments. Um, and I've had that for years. And it, sits in my, it was sitting in my office, now it's sitting at home. And a funny story about this particular uh, paperweight. If you remember, years ago, there was a controversy um, in the southern part of the U.S. about a judge. And this judge had the Ten Commandments on the wall of his courtroom. And he got in trouble. Some groups petitioned that he not be allowed to do that, the tr- separation of church and state or something like that. And so they made him take his Ten Commandments down. Uh, so during that time, I was a regular in front of a certain judge, Judge Dubicki, and uh, uh, I asked him, I said, do you allow the Ten Commandments in your courtroom? And he says, oh, absolutely not. Given that case down there, you can't have the Ten Commandments displayed. But earlier that day, I had taken these, and I had put them in his courtroom over on the, he had a bookshelf on the side, and they were just, it was just there. And I said, after he said, I don't allow that in my courtroom, I said, well, what's that over there? <laughs> and he looked over there, and then uh, he had a panicked look on his face, and I laughed and told him it was a practical joke by me, and he did not send me to jail. He didn't hold me in contempt, fortunately. Uh, I probably was a little out of line in doing that, but uh, that's the story of me and the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. Uh, So sometimes when we see the Ten Commandments, we think of the law. We talk about the gospel, good news. The The law and the gospel, like the gospel is good news, therefore the law must be bad news. And we want to talk today that the law is not bad news, although we look at it oftentimes as restrictive. It prohibits things. You can't do this. You can't do that. It kills all the fun of life, the law. You know, it won't let you do what you really want to do. But imagine what it would be like if we didn't have the law, say traffic laws, the chaos that would ensue because of that. But we, we, intend, we tend to look at the negative side of it, like, you know, what keeps me from traveling 100 miles an hour on Route 74, uh, because that's what I want to do, and I bristle at the fact that I'm not supposed to, that the law won't let me. So we kind of have a negative perception of the law, and <clears throat> lawyers and the law have a reputation. Uh, in my office, there's a bookcase, and in the bookcase, it's, there is on, on the screen, There's a bookcase, and in all those books, there are 75 books in that bookcase. That is the laws of the state of Illinois. Now, that doesn't count federal law or internal revenue uh, IRS laws. Can you imagine what that would be like? Um, So we live in a country of laws, and there are lots of laws, uh, as you can see, and that's just Illinois. Um, So as we look at the Ten Commandments, We want to see the perception of law and really of lawyers is different. For example, anybody here is a Shakespeare aficionado? Um, In Shakespeare, uh, in King Henry 
the sixth, one of his plays, there's a scene. And one of the two main characters is looking at starting a revolution. And when asked how he's going to do it, he says this, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> now, if anybody here knows Shakespeare, interestingly enough, we think that is a negative thing, like, yeah, let's get rid of the lawyers. He's starting a revolution, and he doesn't want the lawyers there because the lawyers will enforce the law to keep the revolution from happening. So if you want to go back and read Henry IV, it's part two, act four, scene two. It is a positive statement about lawyers. So there you go. Even though on my re refrigerator at home, I have a magnet that says, let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments but not the Ten Commandments per se. We're not going to go through the Ten Commandments. Um, but we want to look at more of the circumstances and the context of God giving his people the Ten Commandments. And you ask questions like, why did God do that? Why did he give these Ten Commandments? And why did he do it in the way, in the manner that he did? Why is it different? Um, and what does he want for his people as a result of the Ten Commandments? And then it's clearly for us, what does he want from us? as we look at the Ten Commandments, a fresh perspective on the Ten Commandments. Because over the years, the Ten Commandments have kind of got a bad rap, and it probably all goes back to Charlton Heston in the movie where he's on the mountain, and, it, and there's this finger of God, and he's cowering. God appears to be angry. God appears to be mean-spirited. And it almost seems like the Ten Commandments were given as a punishment. And... Maybe because I've seen that movie and it's left a mark on my brain. Um, it, the Ten Commandments were meant as a gift from God. And we want to look at it in a new, new perspective. So I want to look today at a new perspective on the Ten Commandments. But let's step back a minute. We're going to this is a continuation in our series on the book of Exodus. And it's a way to understand how our story fits in God's story. And the context of what, we're, of what we're talking about today is really, if you go back, the Israelites, if you remember, they're enslaved in Egypt, making bricks without straw. It's a terrible life of slavery. God raises up Moses, and he tells Moses to go and deliver the people. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he goes there, and Pharaoh won't let the people go. So God sends a series of ten plagues, or ten signs, to get the attention of Pharaoh. And ultimately, the last sign was the Passover lamb, where the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost and the top of the door, and the angel of death passed over every house that had the blood on the door. So the people were allowed to leave finally by Pharaoh, and they go out into the desert, and they run into the Red Sea. We've had that a couple weeks ago. The Red Sea is a huge barrier, but as we know, God parts the waters of the Red Sea and delivers his people uh, through the Red Sea, and when they're done, the Red Sea goes back to normal, and there, they, there the people of Israel are looking to head toward the land that God gave them, what we call the promised land. But then as we talked about last week, lots of grumbling. They want to go back to Egypt. Suddenly God does all this and the people start to complain. First, we need more water. We need food. God gives them manna. We need water again. God gives them water. Then they're attacked by enemies and God miraculously delivers them. But they still grumble and complain and they want to go back to Egypt. And we talked last week a little bit about the nostalgia that comes with 
the good old days and remembering what it was like and suddenly what were bad days looked pretty good. And God is taking his people on this journey. So what is God doing here? He brings the people through the Red Sea. They cross through the Red Sea. They're on the other side. And a question that I've always had is, why didn't God just take them to the promised land? Why didn't he take them immediately to the land that he had promised them? As a matter of fact, if you were to look on a map from where the Red Sea is to where Canaan, which is the promised land is, it would be about an 11-day journey. That's it. Yet we know it was over 40 years before they entered into this promised land. Why? What, why the hardships? Why no water? Why no food? Why didn't he just immediately take them to their destiny? And if you were to bring that, run that forward, is when we are saved, why doesn't God just take us to heaven? Why does he leave us to deal with the issues and problems and travails here in this life? And the answer is, because he wants us to be on the journey. That was what Dave talked about last week, the journey. Remember, he talked about the journey he had that culminated him with him being on the mountaintop. And the journey is the key. The destination is important, but the journey is the key. So we learned principles last week like reshaping our identity on the journey. The purpose of the journey is to reshape our identity. And then it's not the destination that changes you, it's the journey. And that's what we're all on. We're all on the journey as we go through this life with God. So today, as we look at God leading the people to the Ten Commandments, really it's a continuation of the journey that God is leading, leading his people on. From the Red Sea to the Promised Land, God has plans for these people, and he wants to work in their lives. So we're going to see that. So let's <clears throat> dive into our text, Exodus 19. If you want to turn there or pull your tablet or phone up. We're going to track through this a little bit as God prepares the people for the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are coming. What did God do to prepare his people for the Ten Commandments? So, several things. First, God tells them their identity in him. This is critical. He tells them ahead of time what they mean to him. So, they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Now they're, at the, they're camping out at the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai. They're camping at the foot of this mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain and meets with God. Then we read this. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that's God's message to the people of Israel. How to look back and think, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Egypt, He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. But also not just to look back, but to look forward is to their identity that they have as children of God. He tells the people who they are, what their identity is, and what they mean to Him. And I've highlighted those, and let's just track through that briefly. 
These, now, keep in mind, this is what he's saying to a group of a million or more people that are grumbling and complaining and want to go back to Egypt. And you think he would chastise them? You think he would uh, cr criticize them or perhaps even punish them? Instead, this is what he says. You're my treasured possession. He refers to the people as his treasured possession, that he owns them. Not only does he own them, but they're treasured. It's his personal treasure, and that the people of God are of great value to God. He calls them a kingdom of priests. Now, you have to have some understanding of what a priest is, but a priest really is a person who mediates between people and God. It's a person who has direct access to God. And what he's saying is your whole kingdom, every one of you, will enjoy a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, not just those people picked out as priests. And then he refers to them as a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart. Holy meaning special. That they are a people set apart from the rest of all other people to be special and have a special relationship with God. And all of this, despite the behavior of the people and their grumbling and whining, complaining way of doing things. But we leave this and we see this, how he treats, the, how he, his attitude toward the people of Israel back in Exodus. But this is exactly how God views people and us today. This is our identity. So listen to this. This is amazing. If you turn over, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen, to the New Testament. Years later, 1 Peter 2.9. This is Peter, the Apostle Peter, speaking about the people he's addressing, which includes us. And it says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's amazing the parallels between these two verses. What God told the Israelites back in Exodus is the same thing he's telling to his people today. We're just not Jewish people. We're not Hebrew people. But we are the people, the Gentiles that have been grafted in. We are people of God. And he's telling us what we mean to him. So if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you've asked him into your life to be your Savior and Lord, see what this says? Chosen. We are chosen. We are like priests. We have a personal relationship with the living God, each one of us individually. And we are so special to God that we are set apart, a holy nation. We are set apart by him to be different. We're set apart from all other people as a treasured possession of the Most High God. That's how God valued the people back then. That's how God values us today. That was their identity back then. That's this, this is our identity today. So as we read about what God's attitude toward us is, there's times we just need to relax and bask in it and thank God that he loves us so much and is on our side. He's for us. This is his attitude toward us. That's the kind of God that we served. That's the kind of God who gave the Ten Commandments. The second thing God had in mind when he brought his people and prepared them for the Ten Commandments is he had people prepare to hear from him. This is, we're going to pick this up in Exodus 19. God is preparing the people to receive the Ten Commandments, to hear from God. Here's what it says. 
The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned and shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for a third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, when you first read this, it's a little peculiar. It's, he talks about washing your garments, cleaning your clothes, doing the laundry. And then he says, don't go near a woman. How unusual is that? We're going to talk about that. Because when you read that, sometimes you read the scripture and you scratch your head. And, you, and that's a good thing to do sometimes because it causes you to dive in and try to understand it. So, how did he tell, what did he tell the people to do to prepare to worship, prepare to hear from God? And what can we take away today as we prepare to worship, as we prepare to hear, for, hear from God? First thing is this, be in the right place. You know, God is everywhere. In our story here today, the people are at the foot of the mountain of God where God is on the mountain. They are near God. That's a good place to be. God is present everywhere, but there are certain times and places where he's more likely to appear and, and talk to us and show us and, and we can hear from him. That's why we're here today. Where we await him, we expect to hear from him, and we're away from the distractions of life that could sometimes get in the way. Perhaps that's why he said, stay away from a woman. We, because sometimes people can be a distraction. Uh, and he wants full devotion because he's ready to speak to the people. And he says, consecrate yourself, prepare yourselves away from the daily duties of things. Purify yourself. Get rid of the junk that might stand in the way of you hearing directly from God. Get rid of physical things. That's probably what he meant when he says, wash your clothing, purify yourselves. Get rid of dirt. Get rid of things in your life that stand in the way of you hearing from God. And then have an attitude of humility and reverence. You notice, things we don't like to hear in this is like, come up to the mountain, but don't go on the mountain. Okay? There's a certain time when we come before God with reverence because he's a holy God. And we need to show him the reverence and the awe that he's due. Here, the mountains around the mountain. The boundaries around the mountain. And then be willing to step into your identity. Be willing to say, I will obey. I will listen. I will do it. I will change my behavior once I hear from God. Have the courage to step into your identity and receive what Christ is telling you. So, how did you prepare this morning, for example, just to come and hear and meet God, hear the, to worship God, to hear the word of God. How did you prepare today? Were you distracted? Are there some things in your life that perhaps you can change so that your heart and your mind and your family is very ready to hear from God? Practical things like sleep. You know, I, I've, I've told other people, years ago on Saturday night I used to watch 
S Law and Order. I watched all the Law and Order shows. <laughs> the uh, Law and Order SVU. And if you've ever seen SVU, it's Special Victims Unit or something. And usually it's about some gross crime. I quit watching it because it, it got my, didn't do anything for my mindset that, that was okay to bring myself to worship the following day. So perhaps get up earlier, get ready, play some worship music, prepare yourself to hear from God. That's what the Israelites were told to do. And then final preparations and events before the actual Ten Commandments. So what did, the, what did God say to do right before they are to receive the Ten Commandments? A lot of descriptive language. Here it is, Exodus 19, 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, remember there were three days. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called out to Moses, to the, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now we find out in the next several verses that Moses went back down, he got Aaron, and then he, Aaron joined him at the top of the mountain. And it's there that God gave them the Ten Commandments. You know, you can read the Ten Commandments on your own. You're probably very familiar with them. But let me highlight the actual Ten Commandments in using the uh, Exodus 20 here. But it starts out, before we even get into the Ten Commandments, this is what God says. This is often overlooked. Here's what God says before he gives them the Ten Commandments. He says this, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He wants them to know, before I give you the law, let's review what I have done in your life. I've been faithful and I've delivered you from that terrible bondage you had in Egypt. Now, listen to what I say. Here they are. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, the Ten Commandments is written in a somewhat negative way, things not to do. But as we travel on here in our message, we see that this is really a gift from God in a positive sense. We're going to get to that. So what did God want the Ten Commandments to do for His people? And what did God want the Ten Commandments to do for us today? How important is it for us today? Three things God wanted the Ten Commandments to do for, the, for His people. First, that they would learn that He alone is the only true God. He's not the best God of all the gods. He's the only God. See, the people had been in slavery for a long time. And they had seen the Egyptian gods. Egypt, Egypt was a very polytheistic 
nation, lots of gods for all kinds of different things. And the people had to learn that that's not the way it is. That God of their fathers was the only God. So he had to wean them away from all these gods of Egypt. As a matter of fact, that's what starts with the plagues. Each of the plagues, if you go back, really deals with a specific God of Egypt. And each of the plagues, God defeats the Egyptian God. The end of the story is, they are all not gods. I am the only God. So he's saying is, he wants his people to learn that he alone is the God. No substitutes, no other gods. The second thing he wanted the Ten Commandments to do is to give the people guidelines about having a relationship with him, about having a relationship with God. What are the guidelines? As we can see some of the Ten Commandments, to honor him, honor him with your speech, honor him with your life. He basically says, I've rescued you and delivered you. Now let me show you what it looks like to be a people that are delivered, a people that belong to me. Remember the Sabbath. Not as just a day where you grudgingly don't mow the lawn, but as a day that is to the Lord. It's unto the Lord. God wants us to have a relationship with Him, and He's given guidelines as to what that looks like. The third thing He does is to help the Israelites break the old habits that they had developed in Egypt and to develop new habits. See, they were slaves in Egypt a long time. Most of the, all the people had not known what it was like before Egypt. And they adopted sometimes the values of Egypt. And God says, I'm going to teach you new values, my values, not the values of Egypt, but the values of me, the only true God. So the Ten Commandments show a need that the people needed as a guide to how to live according to God's moral character and his values, not the values of Egypt. That's the journey. The journey is to change them from what they used to be to what they become a people of God. That's the journey. So what, is, what do the Ten Commandments tell about God? What do they tell us about God? And really, it's, it shows His incredible love for us, His unimaginable, incredible love. He shows us He's got plans for us. The Ten Commandments are not meant as a burden but they are meant to add value to our life, to give freedom and security that only God can give. There's freedom in the law of God. It sounds like an oxymoron, but there's freedom in the law of God. Years ago, an enthusiastic, progressive education person decided that he was going to do something new and different. He decided he was going to take the chain-link fence that surrounded a nursery schoolyard. This chain link fence had been up and he noticed that the, the, the kids were right up to the chain link fence and he thought the children would feel more freedom of movement and feel more comfortable without that visible barrier surrounding them. So when the fence was removed, however, the boys and girls huddled near the center of the playground. They didn't even venture to the edge. Not only did they not wander away, they didn't even go to the edge where the fence used to be. See, this is a parable to show there's freedom and security in defined limits, in defined boundaries. When we know what the rules are, it gives freedom. The Ten Commandments brings freedom. 
And the Ten Commandments is part of a cov- shows a covenant between God and people. His relationship with people. I am your God. You are my special people. That's what God's doing. And it's the start of the Israelites' new life and freedom, showing that God will provide for them. God will take care of them. Why? Because they're a treasured possession. They are a holy nation. They are very near and dear to God. So as we look at the Ten Commandments, like I said, it's a little unfortunate. They're written in a kind of a negative, thou shalt not. Um, And we need to stop viewing the Ten Commandments as a negative, prohibitive, restrictive kind of thing, uh, but as a gift from God with guidelines. There are guidelines for us to enjoy God, to enjoy our life, to enjoy relationships with each other, and how to live like the redeemed people that we really are. So I want to track through the Ten Commandments with a different view of them in a positive perspective. And here they are, going through the Ten. No other gods. Choose the only living God. He says, no graven images. God's saying, don't settle for second best. Don't settle for shadows. Seek the real thing. Seek the real thing. Don't misuse God's names. He says, don't take the Lord, name of the Lord in vain. He says, honor God. Honor God with your speech. His name means something. Honor it. Remember the Sabbath day. He's saying, I've created the Sabbath day as a gift to you. It's a maintenance thing. It helps you live. It gives you rhythm in life. It's a good thing. Rest is a good thing. Honor that. Follow the maintenance schedule that I provided. It's good for you. Honor your parents. Fulfill the cycle of love. Do not murder. What he says is respect life. Humans are created in the image of God. Respect that. Respect life. No adultery. He says, basically saying, enjoy sex within marriage. It's within marriage. Male and female, he created them. Do not steal. He says, acquire, but acquire by the rules. No false witness. Hold on to the truth. God's people should be people of the truth, people of honesty. Life is better when people are truthful. Do not covet. Crave contentment. Be satisfied with what God has given you. Understand he's a good God. He's taking care of you. He's given you everything you need and be satisfied. Don't chase after things. So there's a different view of the Ten Commandments. But you know, years, centuries later, Jesus was confronted with the Ten Commandments and he reinforces the positive nature of the laws of God. He was asked to take for his take on the law. Here's what he says. This is in Matthew 22. It says, it says hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. <clears throat> One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're thinking about the Ten Commandments. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here it is. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. There's Jesus giving his view of the law. <clears throat> so let me wrap it up this morning by, I want to go back to Second Peter, that verse in Second Peter, which is the New Testament verse that echoes the 
language that God used when he spoke to his special people back in Exodus. Here it is. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is what he's speaking to us now. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, kind of like calling you out of Egypt, into his marvelous light, into a deliverance to a life with God. See, this mirror is exactly what he told the Israelites. What he told the Israelites, they were a special people, he's telling us. And we need to grasp this. You know, just as a little sidelight, as a good uh, church kid early on in my life, I had to memorize verses, and back then, I think the only, there only was the King James. And the King James version of this ref- uses the words that you are a peculiar people. The word peculiar. And, and it depends what you mean by peculiar. Um, and so one meaning of this is that you are, of being a peculiar, is you're odd, or you're different, or you're unique. And if, as, a, as Christians, we are called to be peculiar. We are called to be different. We are not like the culture around us. We are to be different. We hold to God's values. So in that sense, I want to be peculiar. I want people to say, Bodhi's peculiar in a good way. But as I spent some time looking at the actual language of what, when he says peculiar people, here's what it means as you, if you look back in the original languages. The word peculiar speaks of a unique, private, personal ownership of the believer by God. Let me say that again. This is how God is for us. Unique, private, personal ownership of the believer by God. See, we are God's unique possession, just as if we were the only human being that ever existed. That's how God values us. So here's what God said to the Israelites, and here's what he says today to us. I chose you. You know, let that sink in. He chose each one of you individually. He chose you. He says, I love you with a love that you cannot even imagine. You are my special possession. That's a love that's hard for us to understand. And he says, you are my unique, special, treasured possession. Not just a possession, but a treasured possession. God says to us, I crave an intimate relationship with you. You're priests. I want, a real, I want an intimate relationship with each one of you. And like the priest in the Old Testament, God says, you can approach me. You can come to me anytime you want, day or night. I am always available. And like I did for the Israelites, I will provide all of your needs. That's the God that we serve. So when we look back and we see how God gave them the Ten Commandments, we see it's not a mean-spirited thing. He says, you're my treasured possession. I love you. I'm doing this for you. That's our identity in Christ. That's your individual identity in Christ. So let that sink in, savor it, let it just bask in it for a moment and think this is God's attitude toward me, that I am this special to him? And the answer is yes, and then thank God for that.